0: Visit the Bedfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to bedfredsports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER.
1: In some ways, music is as essential to the art of filmmaking as cameras, lights, costumes, maybe even actors. In its ability to set a mood, convey a feeling and move the story forward. Today's episode is about those songs. Welcome to the age-old question. I'm Rich Price. And I'm Clint Beerman. This show is sort of like car talk meets behind the music.
2: Ooh, Clint, I like that. Each episode deals with another question in music fandom. The kind of
1: questions that Clint and I have been debating since we were in college. So today, with the help of some smart people,
2: we're going to come up with the answer.
1: Okay, Clint, what's today's question?
2: Today's question is, what is the best use of a song in a movie?
1: That's the age-old question. This week we're talking about the use of songs in films. How a scene in a movie, our experience of that scene, can be inextricably linked to the song used at that particular moment. Now, before we start, we're talking about the best use of songs in films. We'll save a conversation about film scores for another episode. Great. This episode is about the songs.
2: So I started thinking about my favorite movies and the best use of songs. And there are a few people in this world who are just absolutely incredible at finding the right song for the right scene. And my favorite of all time is Cameron Crowe. Love it. So my first nominee for the greatest song in a movie is in your eyes by Peter Gabriel in the movie say anything so in 1989 say anything came out and I will say that right off the top this is one of the first soundtracks I ever owned and I listened to it obsessively like it was an album yeah I mean it was an album but I listened to it as a CD in my iRock Z in high school I had a mullet and I would listen to the say anything on repeat i loved this soundtrack but anytime i hear the song i see lloyd Lord dobler john cusack standing outside her window holding the boombox over his head this is like the most iconic image of of music in a movie that i can think
1: of All my- Lloyd Dobler, played by John Cusack, is in love with Diane Court. Ione Sky. He's totally love-struck by her. She breaks up with him because her dad says that he's a slacker. Right. He pines for her, tries to win her back. So he drives to her house. In the rain. In the rain. Gets out of his car, holds a boombox above his head, and plays...
3: In your eyes, the light, the heat.
2: rushing he's kind of a average joe and she's like this superstar valedictorian so her dad's really just doesn't think he's right for his daughter yeah and yet he's like the greatest dude in the world and he's perfect for her
1: this is my feeling about this song and this scene in this movie if you're a romantic Mm -hmm. and a music fan this scene was meant for you exactly
2: it's perfect and that song is so good i mean i didn't know the song before that movie so here's kind of an example at least for me and this experience is different for everyone because some people you know some songs you don't know some songs but when you discover a song through a movie as i did within the case of in your eyes it really cannot be separated from the visual
1: i'm relieved that you mentioned the song because my friend dave levine would have killed us if we hadn't mentioned it so good job good job good start great start keep going with cameron crowe well one of the most
2: iconic moments in film history certainly for my love of film is in the movie almost famous and the tiny dancer scene is so perfect and now that visual and that song are so married in my brain that one does not exist without the other and here's the fascinating thing about that song is that it wasn't a hit it's over six minutes long it was never released as a single it reached number 41
1: on the U.S. pop chart. You're right, because of that film, because of that scene, that song sticks in my brain as an Elton John hit. Of course, it was one of Elton
2: John's biggest hits, right? But no. But no, it wasn't even a single. But since the movie, it has become one of the staples of his concert. It has become a cultural phenomenon because everyone knows that song now.
1: Why don't you set up the scene, what's happening in the movie? Billy Crudup, who plays
2: Russell Hammond in the movie, has walked out of a big fight with his band. And he goes, they're in Kansas, I think, goes to a party, takes a bunch of acid, and it's that masterful scene where, I'm a golden god, and he's standing on the roof. I am a golden god! Yeah! 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 Just a perfect scene. And so the, the night ends, he's coming down, the band shows up to pick him up, and they're in their big tour bus, walks on the bus they sit on the bus and now they're all back together again the band is back together penny lane is there dick the manager's there everybody's realizing that they don't want to fight anymore and this is like this song that brings them all back together it's like this is why we do it it's like this triumphant return and it's that moment in the movie where you get chills and then the song is perfect for that ladies and gentlemen the evening
3: is over we hope you all enjoyed yourselves and we'll see you all again in 1974. Good evening! Blue Jean Baby
0: Lady Seamstress for the Bang
1: So Russell gets back on the bus. They're all sort of sitting there in silence and the song is playing. And all of a sudden, one of them starts singing along. And then more people start singing along until everyone is singing along together. And it goes from this really somber mood to all of a sudden this moment of collective joy because of the music. I agree. This is one of the all-time great uses of a song in film.
2: I mean, it's a perfect moment.
0: Jesus
3: frees out in the street Tickets off a back, she just laughs. The Boulevard is not that bad.
2: The thing about the song is they take out the entire pre chorus, they don't play the pre chorus. That section is not in the movie. It goes from blue jean baby into the home oh, it right so it, it skips that whole section and so pretty interesting in and of itself that the director cut the song and it's almost better I mean no offense Elton, but
3: the word she knows the tune she home time to dance. Have to go home, Count the headlights on the you are home. what do you got, Rich?
1: Well, you mentioned Cameron Crowe is a master of finding the perfect songs for that moment in a film. I want to suggest that the Coen brothers are also masters of that. They've made some of the great American films of the past few decades, and music is always a definitive element of their storytelling. We've already talked about. The Big Lebowski on this show. Oh, yeah. In episode five, Why Do People Hate the Eagles? <laughs> and we've established that that film is one of the all-time greats, certainly one of our favorites. Yes. Just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's set to the psychedelic, dreamlike trip that the dude is having. The visuals are so weird. In one moment, Saddam Hussein is the guy in the bowling alley handing people their shoes.
3: It's <laughs> <laughs> so good.
1: The dude levitates going down the bowling alley, looking up the skirts of like show dance, showgirl <laughs> dancers, right? Do you know anything
3: about this song? I tripped on a cloud and fell eight miles high, high. I tore my mind on a jagged sky. I
2: just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in.
3: Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition my condition was in.
2: I know that it's Kenny Rogers.
1: That's all I know about this song.
2: It's one of my favorite songs because of this movie. Here's right. another example of something I'd never heard. Exactly. And yet, boy, anytime that song comes on, there's nothing but Big Lebowski going on. I mean, that
1: is... Right. Fun. You mentioned these two categories of songs, right? Songs that are really well known that then become linked to, to this film. Or songs that very few people knew. And we have to be clear, like, you and I are both in our mid 40s. So people 10 years older than us might be like, "What are you talking about?" You that's talking that's about? Kenny Rogers. But like I'd never heard that song before right. The Big Lebowski. Right. Here's another Cohen Brothers film that I absolutely love. And it's maybe their most complete marriage of film and song. Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? George Clooney, John Turturro, Tim Blake Nelson. They've escaped from a chain gang. They're still wearing shackles. Yeah. And they walk into a studio as the Soggy Bottom Boys and record Man of Constant Sorrow.
3: Where he was born in
1: the guy who's actually singing that song is a guy named Dan Tominski. Dan Tominski yeah. is from Rutland Vermont. How about that? How about that? Shout out to Rutland Vermont. Shout out to Rut <laughs> <Shout out> Vegas. <laughs> and the song and the whole soundtrack became a hit. Multi-platinum selling compilation of mountain music and American bluegrass produced by T-Bone Burnett, who also produced what album? One of our favorite albums. August and Everything After by The Counting
3: Crows.
1: Okay, back to Oh Brother. It's basically a retelling of the story of Odysseus. In fact, George Clooney's character's name is Ulysses. In one scene, there are three women washing their clothes in a river, and just like the sirens in the story of Odysseus, who were singing and drawing the sailors towards the rocks and their eventual undoing, these sirens are singing to George Clooney, John Turturro, Tim Blake Nelson, "Go to sleep, little baby."
3: Go to sleep, you little baby. Go to sleep, you little baby. Go to sleep, you little little baby. Your mama's gone away and your daddy's gonna stay. do leave nobody but
1: the baby. The song's actually performed by Emmylou Harris, Alison Krauss, and Gillian Welch. Now that's a trio. Boom. A this album
2: won a Grammy. It literally brought bluegrass music to the forefront of pop culture. Right. For maybe the first time ever. What a great album. All
1: right, what else you got?
2: All right, I'm gonna go with another director quentin tarantino Mm. and reservoir dogs was i think my freshman year in college which is like the perfect time to see a shoot 'em up movie right right the first one is little green bag do you remember that song it was recorded and released by the george baker selection that was the name of the band i'd never heard this song so the opening scene of reservoir dogs they're sitting around all the guys are sitting around that table in the diner after that whole opening scene they get up and then it starts, the most iconic opening of any scene ever, that slow motion walk.
1: Michael Madsen, Steve Buscemi, yeah. Tim Roth, Harvey Keitel.
2: Quentin Tarantino.
1: Oh, right. He's Mr. He's Brown. In yeah, right. he's
2: Mr. Brown. Why do I got to be Mr. Brown? Right. So they are walking slow motion. They're all wearing dark suits. I had never heard that song before. No. I don't think anybody had heard that song before, but man, has that become an iconic moment in film history.
1: He does this maybe better than anyone of going through the detritus and like the forgotten songs and finding something to bring it back.
2: And this song ended up charting number 21 on the U S hot 100 billboard chart after this movie. Amazing. It totally resurrected this from obscurity into the, collective consciousness
1: into the collective consciousness quentin tarantino does this for actors as well totally like john travolta john travolta in pulp
2: fiction he hadn't done anything for a long time exactly here's an example of taking a song that everybody knows and putting it in a context that you don't expect stuck in the middle with you by Steeler's wheel
1: no one had ever considered (laughs) when they heard that song never first
2: of all no one could ever consider what happens Ever anyway so set the scene okay so michael madsen is mr white and they've captured this cop and he's tied up in a chair and this song comes on side note throughout this entire soundtrack steven wright the comedian is the radio dj who keeps introducing the songs and he comes every other song on the on the soundtrack, he introduces the song.
1: Joe Egan and Jerry Rafferty were a duo known as Dealers Wheel when they recorded this Dylan-esque pop bubblegum favorite from April of 1974. That reached up to number five as <sighs> K. Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s continue.
2: And so it starts, and you see Michael Madsen start dancing super slowly, and he's like swinging his arms, and in his right hand, he's holding a blade and he just you're like it's such a happy song and you're like this is such an odd it's a juxtaposition of what you hear and what you see do not mix and so eventually he walks up to the guy cuts his ear off with a blade Right. right Then dumps gasoline
1: all over his head
2: all the while this song he's
1: playing mr. white is a psychopath yes complete separation between a sense of right and wrong he finds complete enjoyment in that torture it's, of a human being and it's so unsettling and the only thing
2: that can make it more unsettling right. taking a song that you know and love right. and marrying it to that scene yeah. is absolute genius and has stuck with me ever since genius and we we played that song with Paige at Hug Your Farmer and he yes. sang it and that's
1: all I thought about the whole time yes <laughs> Here, yes, me. yes. Yeah, so we talked about last week you playing Shakedown Street, Shakedown Street right. with John Fishman and Paige McConnell, right. half of the guys in Fish. Right. That same show you played Stuck in the Middle and right. he sang this. It. Yes.
2: It's such a great song. It's so not what I expected. Yeah. All right. Pulp Fiction came out in 1994, in October of 1994. And the reason I know this is because in November of 1994, for my birthday, I talked my entire family into going <laughs> to this movie. I was a freshman in college and... You'd heard some buzz? I heard some buzz. It was popping off. I said, ma, pa, let's go to the movies, my sister. We walked out of the movie and they were like, what is wrong with you? I was like, that was the greatest film of all time. All right. So again, Quentin Tarantino, a master of music. Yeah. So there are multiple songs in this movie that are worth mentioning. The biggest is You Never Can Tell by Chuck Berry. Mm. There's that scene when Vincent Vega, played by John Travolta, is taking Mia Wallace, who is played by Uma Thurman, out for dinner because Marcellus Wallace asked him to.
1: And so, Who's the kingpin.
2: He's he's like, the, you don't even, yeah, all you see is the back of his head, right? Yeah. You never see who it is. Yeah. So, takes her out to Jackrabbit Slims, which is like this retro 50s diner where the waiters dress up as actors. There's this dance contest where they both get on stage, Uma Thurman, John Travolta, First of all, John Travolta is high as can be on heroin. The fake Ed Sullivan introduces them.
0: Young lady, what is your name? Mrs. Mia Wallace. And uh, how about your fella here? Vega. <laughs> all right, let's see what you can do. Take it away.
2: You Never Can Tell comes on.
3: It was a teenage wedding and the old folks wished them well.
2: And then they do that whole thing with their eyes, or they do the two fingers around their eyes. And this has become a dance. A dance. And it's at every event, wedding,
1: yeah. I mean high school dance. If you're listening to this now, raise your hand if you have done this dance at some point in your life. Okay, you're all raising your hand.
2: Everyone is. There's no way you can't. It's that
3: iconic.
1: There's two more American filmmakers that I want to make sure we talk about. The first is Paul Thomas Anderson. He's made some great films. Unbelievable. His film, Boogie Nights from 1997, is incredible in its use of songs. So I'll choose the song that I remember best from that film, Sister Christian by Night Ranger. <laughs> I had this on my list. Too. <laughs> you remember that scene? Oh, my God. So the film is about a sweet and slightly dim porn star named Dirk Diggler played brilliantly by Mark Wahlberg. At this point in the film, he's gone from a massive porn star, both popular and (laughs) well-endowed, in the peak of the 1970s to now here we are in the 80s and he's hit rock bottom. He and his faithful sidekick, Reed, again, brilliantly played by John C. Riley, are coked up and beat down. And together with a loser grifter named Todd, they go to a drug dealer's house to pass off baking soda as cocaine to sell to this guy, when they walk into the house, Rahad, who's played by Alfred Molina, is in a silk robe some, listening some, to Night Ranger, got really loud.
3: There it is. That's right. a fat half key right there. <laughs> right. And that is some quality
4: shit. If you want it, oh, don't worry you about it. I mean, go ahead. You know. If you want no,
3: wait, no, no, wait, 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 wait.
1: And as Dirk and Reed's coke-induced paranoia grows. And Rahad's boyfriend is in the background lighting firecrackers. Todd can't stop laughing. While Dirk and Reed are like, oh my god, what's going on? Rahad starts playing Russian roulette with a handgun. The whole scene is brilliantly stressful. All the while, Sister Christian is playing in the background. (laughs) Such an easy listening anthem. Totally. I want to talk about one other filmmaker. Yes. Wes Anderson, yes. We could do an entire episode on Wes Anderson's films and how he uses songs to shape the world of his characters, but I'm going to go through a couple highlights very quickly. In the film *The Life Aquatic* with Steve Zissou, Wes Anderson has the Brazilian actor and musician So Georgie as a cast member on the ship, covering the music of David Bowie, but in Portuguese.
3: Tem um mundo a esperar por nós. O infinito do céu azul pode ter vida em Marte. Então vem da sua língua. Então vem. Eu quero abraçar você. Seu poder vem do sol. Minha medida. Então vem nos viver a vida. Perfect
1: example of how Anderson uses music to establish his signature quirky vibe. Interesting note, David Bowie said of those versions, had he not recorded my songs in Portuguese, I would never have heard this new level of beauty, which he has imbued them with. But maybe my favorite Wes Anderson film is his first, Bottle Rocket. You
2: love Bottle Rocket?
1: I love Bottle Rocket. It's also the first film for Luke and Owen Wilson, who I also love. Yeah, Martin Scorsese loves this film. He says, Anderson has a fine sense of how music works against an image. He goes on to talk specifically about the end of the film. Owen and Luke Wilson's characters are in the midst of a failed heist. And one of their crew members, Applejack, gets stuck in the elevator as they're leaving. Luke Wilson's character says he'll go back for Applejack. And Owen Wilson's character, Dignan, says,
0: Who is in charge here? You dumb son of a bitch. Now please leave.
1: Give me this one. Give me this one. Gotta give me this one. I mean, you know what's gonna happen if you go back there? No, I don't. You'll never catch me, man. Because 'Cause I'm fucking innocent. Scorsese describes what happens next. He runs off to save one of his partners in crime and gets captured by the police. Over two thousand man by the Rolling Stones. He and the music are proclaiming. Who he really is. He's not innocent in the eyes of the law, but he's truly an innocent. It's a transcendent moment in film." Wow. That's high praise. That's high praise coming from another guy who does music really well. Clint, there's a film for me that is entirely linked to a main song. It's cheating a little because it's an original song that could be considered part of the score. But the song actually charted and reached number one, so I'm including it. It's from the film Chariots of Fire. Remember that film? Oh, yeah. It came out in 1981, and it's an historical British drama set in the period between 1919, right after the First World War, and 1924, focusing on a group of British athletes and their journey to the 1924 Olympic Games in Paris. The two main characters are Harold Abrams an English Jew who's motivated by the deep prejudice that he experiences in his life, especially at the hands of the master at the college at Cambridge, played ominously by John Gilgood. The second main character is Eric Little. He's a devout Scottish missionary who runs for the glory of God first and country second. It's a great film. I love it. I just watched it with my kids. They loved it. But one thing that's interesting about the music is that the composer, Vangelis, wrote music that's electronic and synthesizer-based. In other words, a period piece with music that was totally modern. But it totally works. In fact, Vangelis won an Oscar for the music, and the song, Charted, went to number one in the U.S. Billboard charts. The song has become synonymous with running. Heroic (laughs) athleticism, right? (laughs) Totally. As these runners are... Running in slow, slow motion, motion on yeah. the beach. <laughs> Another note on Chariots of Fire. The film was produced by a guy named Jake Eberts, who provided the initial development cost for the film. Someone that maybe you haven't heard of, but he's one of the all-time legends of film producing. Consider this. He won back-to-back Best Film Oscars for Chariots of Fire in 1981 and Gandhi in 1982. Some other films that he's produced, The Killing Fields, The Name of the Rose with Sean Connery, Robert Redford's A River Runs Through It, Driving Miss Daisy, Jeez. Dances with Wolves, Whoa. the animated film Chicken Run, the documentary March of the Penguins.
2: Good gracious. I mean,
1: that's an incredible resume.
2: Unbelievable.
1: And that's just a sampling. Jake Eberts died in 2012 at the age of 71, so we can't talk to him. But I actually went to grade school with his kids dave and Lindsay. in fact we lived across the street from one another in london now i haven't talked to dave in 32 years <laughs> oh my gosh he's a filmmaker now himself i got his phone number and i texted him i said we're doing this podcast would you come on the podcast to talk a little bit about your father and chariots of fire
2: unbelievable
1: so let's call let's him. call him hello dave it's rich price how are you
4: I'm good. How are you
1: doing? Good. You're also on the line with Clint Bierman. Hey, Dave. Great. It's so great to talk to you after all these years. How are you? And first of all, where are you?
4: I am in Montreal.
1: I was just explaining, Dave, that um, you and I went to school together. We lived across the street from each other in London. And I was 10 or 11, but I was aware of the films that your father had made, particularly aware of a film that had a big impact on me, Chariots of Fire. Interested to hear if you can share a story about your dad's experience in making that film.
4: Sure, yeah, as you said, uh, my, my father was uh, he was a film producer. His background was actually in, in finance. He worked on Wall Street, and, uh, and, and as he liked to say, he was terrible at it, so on a chance encounter with a friend, he was asked if he wanted to invest in movies, and um, or in a specific movie, which was Watership Down, which is his first film. And uh, it became this kind of a big hit. It was almost an accidental hit for him. And then that led to him starting this company called Goldcrest. And one of the first projects that Goldcrest um, helped finance was Chariots of Fire. When he and David Putnam, who was the producer of the film, they, were, they had a deal for the film with a studio who I guess they had an option on the film. So they you know, put some money up front and they got to basically decide, once they saw the first cut of the film, they got to decide whether or not they were going to go forward. And the deal itself was not a great one. So my dad was, in some ways, kind of hoping that they wouldn't take the film. They had this version of Chariots of Fire, and it had a tenth score on it, which is just, by its very name, it's, it's just the temporary music that they put on a film. And the movie with the tenth score, he said, was just dull as hell. And he admitted, you know, they kind of watched this thing with this temp music and they were kind of all looking at each other wondering how are we ever going to sell this thing. But one day the composer Vangelis delivered his soundtrack for the film while they were in editing. And even before they'd put it against picture, they, he said that they looked at each other and they thought this is, this is unbelievable and this is a, just a kind of iconic piece of music on its own. And uh, so the story goes that the studio who had this option on the film called up to say, Hey, we want to watch the film. They ended up showing the film with the tent music because the studio kind of insisted, my dad asked them, do you want to see it now? Or do you want to see it you know, next week when we cut in all the tent music? And I think that he kind of made the, the editing of all the Vangelis music sound like a big laborious thing and said, maybe you want to see the tent version. Um, and sure enough, he ended up, they said, yeah, we want to see it right away. So they watched the film with the 10th version of the music, and they, they, they agreed it was just very dull and not interesting. And then they took the Vangelis score, put it on the, the exactly the same cut, and they started showing it around town. And apparently the first studio that saw it just said, this is, this is incredible, we have to have this movie. And then they ended up getting this significantly better deal uh, and really not a single frame of the film had changed it was only going from Kemp's score to evangelical's score
1: I love this because this is exactly what we're talking about today which is the power of music as a tool for storytelling
4: uh, I agree I agree completely and music played uh, in a massive role in in his films I mean he, he's has been involved was involved in some very iconic films like i mean he won four best pictures his films uh with Chariots of Fire, and then Gandhi, Dance with Wolves, and Drive Miss Daisy. Um, but he had many other films that where the soundtrack was an integral part, whether it's, you know, River Runs Through It, same thing with Dance with Wolves, Drive Miss Daisy. I think my dad would often talk about the power of music. And, and he would remember that that event with Chariots of Fire, and I think it really influenced him greatly in the rest of his career. He always made sure that they had the proper budget for the music. He always made sure that they had the right, the right amount of
2: time. Hey Dave, I got a question for you. What would be your favorite example of a song in a movie where the song is completely married to the visual in your mind? Just
4: speaking about my dad's films, I think Driving Miss Daisy, that main theme is so uh, so well-crafted. It's got, it's you know, the story about this um, driver the chauffeur who develops this very beautiful relationship with um, the woman that he works for, and that main theme, it, you, you almost can't imagine him driving that car without that song.
3: Mm.
4: Mm. Um, it's such a beautiful melody, and it's kind of, yeah, it would almost be, it almost seems like it was the two things were made together. They were always meant to go together. In my own documentaries, my favorite uh, soundtracks are ones where the pieces of music They really do sound like they're coming from the same
1: brain, the same theme. Someone has really thought about all these pieces of music together. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on. I've been working in documentaries since 1999. I've worked
4: on documentaries about fighter pilots in Abu Dhabi. I did a film about women in rural Zambia being taught how to use film as a way to, to express themselves and speak out in their community. Right now, I'm developing a documentary. I guess you would describe them as an autistic savant a guy who had this kind of strange and and unusual ability, which he um, demonstrated over 30 years. He would make these devices, these kind of inventions. They look almost like circuits made by a crazy artist. And these circuits were made of copper wire, glass, uh, and and even macaroni. And and they honestly look like junk. But these things, these devices, which he called modules... Um, all did one thing, which was they produced electricity, and nobody in this guy's entire lifetime, he was making these things for 40 years, no scientist, technician, or engineer could ever explain how these things produce power. The smallest one produced only one volt of electricity, uh, but the largest one, he claimed, powered his whole home. And I saw many demonstrations of this guy and, um, and got to see these things and hold them in my hands and... Uh, a family friend who used to work for NASA did some tests on one of the modules and, and he said look I, I don't know how these things work but I can tell you that there's no batteries or any kind of trickery but when you ask this guy Daniel how these things work he can never give you a technical explanation he, he could only say that he was just inspired to make them and he said he'd take his mind to a place where there's no rules and was, that he was kind of outside of the bounds of kind of the laws of society and physics and and in in that state he said he can pretty much do anything with his mind and so it's a long long gestating process and somehow just this obsession with this man is has is still burning bright and it looks like he might you might have some funding now after many years of kind of trying to figure out how you tell this story
1: that sounds really really interesting fascinating I love that idea of going to a place in his mind where there are no rules. That's a place we should all visit. Well, Dave, Clint and I are here in Burlington as the crow flies, not too far from you in Montreal. When the border's open, we'd love to connect in person and, and look forward to chatting some more.
4: That would be great. All right, guys, take care.
1: Bye. how about some honorary mentions? Okay. Any chance you and I get to talk about Huey Lewis in the News, we, we take, right? <laughs> Love. How about The Power of Love from Back to the Future?
2: It's one of the best.
1: Two of my favorite things, actually. Back to the Future is one of my all-time favorite films. Anytime I stumble across this when I'm like channel surfing yeah. and I see it, I watch it. The rest of it. And Power of Love, inextricable from that film. Written for the film, right? I don't know. I
2: What's think it? Huey Lewis watched a cut of it and wrote the music but it's, remember it's the opening scene
1: where yeah. he wakes up
3: Doc, are you telling me that it's 825 precisely damn I'm late for school
1: and he's all late and he gets on a skateboard yeah. and he starts riding on the back of yeah. cars yeah oh it's incredible All right, how about another Huey Lewis song? Okay. This time in the film, American Psycho. Oh yeah. Christian Bale, he invites this guy Paul Allen played by Jared Leto over to his apartment and he provides a cogent analysis of the music of Huey Lewis in the news. Something the writer Brett Easton Ellis calls a kind of pompous pseudo intellectual term paper review. Just as he's getting ready to take an ax to this unsuspecting guy. (laughs) It's brilliant and scary and there could not be a better song.
0: You like Huey Lewis on the News? They're okay. Their early work was a little too new wave for my taste. But when sports came out in
2: 83, I think they really came into their own, commercially and artistically.
0: The whole album has a clear, crisp sound and a new sheen of consummate professionalism that really gives the songs a big boost.
2: He's been compared to Elvis Costello, but I think Huey has a far more bitter, cynical sense of humor. Hey,
3: Albus, to... Yes, Alan? Why are there copies of the style section on the play? Do you... Do you have a dog? A little chow or something? <laughs> no, Alan. Is that a raincoat? Yes, it is. In 87,
0: Huey released this for their most accomplished album. I think their undisputed masterpiece is Hip To Be Square song so catchy most people probably don't listen to the lyrics but they should because it's not just about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of friends it's also a personal statement about the band itself hey Paul
1: Huey and because you and I also love Weird Al yes I want to also mention that Weird Al and Huey Lewis made a shot-for-shot parody of this scene for Funny or Die where Huey Lewis is the Christian Bale character (laughs) telling
2: about Huey
0: Lewis talking
1: about American psycho.
0: Oh, oh, whoa.
1: It's like very meta.
0: Meta. Do you like American psycho?
1: It's Okay
0: Although originally polarizing to audiences and critics alike it developed a much-deserved cult following when released on digital Video disc or DVD There it found a second life and really came into its own commercially and artistically. All right. (laughs) What
1: else you got? Uh,
2: Well, I want to talk about love scenes for a second. Mm. so there are a couple Mm. couple songs that are just totally intertwined in my brain with the love scene that it came from. Great. Number one, These Arms of Mine, Otis Redding in Roadhouse. These
3: arms of mine
1: They are lonely That song, one of my all-time favorite songs.
2: Same. Patrick Swayze and Kelly Lynch in the barn going to town to this song and this was roadhouse has become maybe the most played ever movie on cable tv i don't know if that's a fact but my god it's on all the time or it used to be when i was watching tv second one take my breath away in top gun remember that scene where they're like kissing and another funny story i went to see that with my parents as well i'm like 12 13 years old and tom cruise and kelly mcgillis start making out tongues licking each other all dinosaur-y and that film came yeah. out when I was
1: 10 I and it was blew my mind
2: 10? okay I was 12 yeah, yeah that's right when you don't want to see that with your parents
1: the scene is Tom Cruise is, is pissed he's been embarrassed by Kelly McGillis who's his civilian instructor Lieutenant Lieutenant my
4: review of your flight performance in the past was right on in my professional opinion. I can't hear you
1: He takes off on his motorcycle. She follows in a car and he's like,
3: are you crazy? Jesus Christ! And you think I'm reckless? When I fly, I'll have you know that my crew and my plane come first. Well, I'm going to finish my sentence, Lieutenant. My review of your flight performance was right on. Is that right? is right. But I held something back. I see some real genius in your flying, Maverick, but I can't say that in there. I was afraid that everyone in that tax trailer would see right through me. And I just don't want anyone to know that I've fallen for him.
1: If we're talking about Top Gun, let's talk also cuz I feel the need the need for speed. for speed. Kenny Loggins Danger Zone. Unbelievable. That song is inextricably linked to fighter F-18s. fighter, yeah, fighter jets. we're talking Kenny Loggins. Yeah. How about Footloose? Footloose? I thought this was a party! Let's dance! (sighs) I mean, Footloose 84, Top Gun 86. Kenny Loggins was a golden god. How about I'm All
2: Right from Caddyshack? Also Kenny Loggins. What year is
1: that? 80? So 80, 84, 86. (laughs)
2: Golden guy, and that's got that journey song too. So what? So let's dance. Yeah. Anyway, that's the way. That's a great moment.
3: So what? So what? So let's dance.
1: How about Lindsey Buckingham's Holiday Road from Vacation? Oh
2: God, I love.
1: (laughs) Remember that song? Yeah. Chevy Chase is (laughs) driving along, his family's sleeping. All of a sudden, Chrissy Brinkley in a red Ferrari. Oh yeah.
2: How about the crush you had on her at that point in your life? Like, unbelievable.
1: Another Tom Cruise one we have to mention is Risky Business.
2: Oh, Oh, of course. Old
1: time rock and roll. He slides, he slides across slides in his socks in his and his tiny whities <laughs> I mean, who hasn't done that? Right. Anytime that
2: song comes on, somebody does somebody it. Somebody does it. <laughs> One of my all-time favorites. Yeah. Fight Club. I loved the movie Fight Club so much. At the end scene, Ed Norton is in the top of this building. He just shot himself. He's like all haggard and bloody. And Marla comes in, played by by Helena Bonham Carter yeah. comes in and they're standing at the top and they look out over the city and Where's My Mind by the Pixies starts. And then the buildings start blowing up and falling and you just see like multiple buildings falling in the distance while this amazing song is playing. That's an example of a song that I had never heard before until that. Right. And then you leave the theater singing that song. Right. And I immediately looked it up and it's become one of my favorites.
4: Marla, look at me. I'm really okay. Trust me. Everything's gonna be (gasps) fine.
3: You met me at a very strange time in my life. With your feet on the
1: Here's another one. Remember Wayne's World, Clint? Oh yeah. So it had been a recurring sketch on SNL, starring Mike Myers as Wayne and Dana Carvey as his trusted sidekick Garth. Well, they made a film of it in 1992. The song Bohemian Rhapsody is used in the film's opening sequence with Wayne and Garth and their friends in the car singing along. To the song. <laughs> this is my best friend Garth Elgar. Hi. I think we'll go with a little Bohemian Rhapsody, gentlemen. Good call. Yeah.
3: I see a little silhouette of a man. Got a moosh, got a moosh. Will you do the fandango? Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening me. Galileo, Galileo. He loves me. He's
1: just a from a this film introduced the music of Queen to an entire, an entire new generation. New generation. Interesting note about the use of this song: the studio wanted to use a Guns N' Roses song. Right. Mike Myers said, "Hell no! It's Bohemian Rhapsody." He even threatened to quit the film over this argument. Freddie Mercury died of pneumonia resulting from AIDS just before the film came out. But he had seen an early cut of the film and this scene, and he enthusiastically approved its use. Nice.
2: (laughs) They used to do it. Mike Myers did this in high school with his friends, two bohemian raps. When the headbanging part comes,
0: so good.
2: Remember Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Oh, oh man! There is a song in that that no one ever heard before this movie. It's a song called "Oh Yeah" by Yellow. The
3: 1961 Ferrari 250 GT California. Less than a hundred were made. My father spent three years restoring this car. It is his
4: love. It is his passion. This oh, is yeah. don't. Lock the oh,
1: that song is so perfectly placed and if we're talking about Ferris Bueller we have to talk about twist and shout and that scene oh my what do you think Ferris is gonna do
3: gonna be a we'll take it baby now, take it baby,
2: that changed my life that scene
3: changed my
2: absolutely is obsessed with that song after that yeah obsessed
1: (laughs) there's an awesome dance scene in that too you know who we should call clint who so we've had emily vorhees on this podcast before saxophones on the sax episode her mom sarah vorhees is a well-known film critic i'm interested to hear from the perspective of a film critic a professional a professional i can't wait Hey, Sarah! You've got Rich and Clint on the line. Hi, Sarah. Oh boy, lucky me! (laughs) We're so (laughs) glad to talk to you. Well, first of all, you're one of my closest friends. You have been such a great supporter of me over the years, and I always love talking about music and films with you. I want to start here. What's it actually like to be a film critic?
3: Uh, to the maximum, it was coolest <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> no question. Just put me in an empty theater and I'm happy. That's followed up by talking about the movie with the actors. I mean seriously,
1: so when I watch a movie, when I go to see a film, I have to eat popcorn. Do you also have like a that need to eat popcorn and in, in which case like how how are you not seven hundred pounds? <laughs> <laughs>
3: Wait a minute, is this a commercial? (laughs) (laughs) I can stand in line to the very end, just before the movie starts for popcorn, absolutely, with lots of butter.
1: Nice. Okay, before we get on to the the song, I'm also interested, part of being a film critic is, as you say, interviewing the stars of the films. Mm -hmm. Is there an actor or an interview that stands out as particularly interesting or strange or exhilarating?
3: I'll tell you, Robin Williams is my guy. He was a really genuinely just funny person and love to make everybody laugh. Yeah. And I, so I, I'm, I was just crazy about him. So mm. that, would, that would be my numero uno.
2: Love it. Cool. I have a question. So, through all the m- movies you've seen, can you pick where a song has become so intertwined with the visual? That you can't hear the song without seeing that scene of the movie.
3: Well, I would have to look at Sound of Music for that. Okay. The escape and the music was telling us that it was going to be okay and don't worry.
1: And and by the way, I know this. You had your bridesmaids wearing later hosen's and, and smocks from Sound of Music. Is this right? Is this just a rumor?
3: It's the truth. (laughs) It's the absolute truth. Okay.
1: So before we let you go, Sarah, what is your favorite film of all time?
3: My first movie I ever saw, I can tell you if you'll tell me yours.
1: My first cinema experience was E.T., Oh. Mine was Popeye with Robin Williams.
3: No kidding? Yeah. I love that. Mine was Lady in the Tramp. The song they sang was... This is the night, it's a beautiful night, and we call it
1: It's funny because some of those old animated films I love still, and I struggled to get my kids yeah. to connect to them because I think the pacing of these films is so much slower. They, they watch yeah. it and they say, gosh, this, this is, is so boring. boring. Yeah.
3: Wow, what an incredible insight.
1: I love you, Sarah. I'm so glad that you could come on the age old question and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Sarah. Bye.
3: Bye. And we call it then,
1: That was great. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. That was awesome. You mentioned earlier that, in some ways, some of these soundtracks were actually albums. Mm -hmm. And you don't remember the song on the original album it came out
2: on. Right. You just remembered it on the soundtrack.
1: Let's talk about a couple examples.
2: So, the single soundtrack from Cameron Crowe's movie, Singles, was like right at the beginning of Grunge. Right when you and I were in middle to late high school, which is just the wheelhouse for music. And it had Pearl Jam it had Soundgarden, Chris Cornell, Screaming Trees, like all these grunge bands. It really brought this music to the forefront of pop culture in a way. I mean, Nirvana had been happening. Pearl Jam had been happening. And then all of a sudden you have this like greatest hits album of Seattle
1: just happens to be the soundtrack of a movie. He was at the inception of these eras in music, right? Like, when he was a young guy, and you know, the film Almost Famous is based on his experience, right? right? So he was a young guy as a writer on assignment for Rolling Stone. He's touring with Led Zeppelin, he's touring with The Almond Brothers the Allman Brothers, he's touring with the Eagles. Yes. Like he's living through that period. And then, as you say, like a lot of us, me included, became aware of the grunge scene because he was living through the inception of that scene. I loved that album. What's a highlight from that soundtrack? Crown of
2: Thorns by Mother Love Bone became my favorite song junior and senior year of high school. Soundtrack. And
1: Mother Love Bone was like half Pearl
2: Jam, half Soundgarden, is that right? The lead singer was Andy Wood who died of a heroin overdose before anyone got really famous, but he was like the king of the scene. He was right. like
1: the voice. Right. And they all say talk about him now as right. like he was the best among us. Right.
2: In Rebels. In Rebels.
1: How about the big chill
2: oh my god
1: it's the first soundtrack i remember buying actually on cassette mm-hmm. glenn close jeff goldblum william hurt kevin klein tom berenger and a group of others as friends from college reuniting after 15 years when their friend alex dies by suicide but the soundtrack was incredible it's a mix of some of the best soul r&b and rock from the 60s and 70s aretha
3: on the morning rain I used to feel Marvin Ooh, I bet you to know how I do I'm sure plans to
1: make me The Temptations
3: I know you want to leave me But I refuse to let you go
1: Smokey Robinson
3: So take a good look at my face You'll see my smile
1: Three Dog Night. Jeremiah was the bullfrog, The Young Rascals.
3: <laughs>
1: and Procol Harum. The film soundtrack itself was a top 20 hit in the US Billboard charts. White or Shaded Pale is top five songs of all time. From that soundtrack.
2: I didn't know the song before that. Discovered it on that soundtrack. I listened to it every month since I was
1: 15 years old. I want to take a moment to say that you and I have a song on the Shrek 2 soundtrack. Yes, we do. And that song changed my life. And the fact that that song ended up on the Shrek 2 soundtrack is really special for me. But the fact that I wrote that song with you, for me, that started a lifetime collaboration Literally. That has changed my life and continues to change my life. Agreed. So the song is I'm on my way. And I remember sitting
2: in Carbondale, Colorado at Sam Elmore's house, New Year's Eve. Yes. And we're all sitting around a couch and we had been tinkering with it that week. You had come to visit in Boulder. Yeah. And I remember playing the chorus just over and over again and getting the chords for the verse. And I recorded it in my flip phone onto my voicemail. Yeah. So, recorded it and before I shut the phone, I was like, that's the one.
3: But I'm on my way.
1: And that song has had a life of its own. It was on a, you know, multi-platinum soundtrack yeah. along with County Crows and Beck way. and other guys. <laughs> a bunch of other oh, cool Oh, Funky Town. People. Another soundtrack that I want to mention is a film that I was just a part of called The Independence. time. Written and directed by my bandmate, Greg Naughton, the film is loosely based on our experience as a band. Music is such an important part of the storytelling. I'm blown away by Greg for having made that film. It's incredible. I'm really proud of how he weaved together the music to tell a really interesting and compelling story.
2: He did an amazing job, and it's currently available to stream. On major platforms. Yeah,
1: wherever you watch your movies. Wherever you want to
2: see a movie, it's there. The independence.
1: The point is, you don't stop the music. You do what you got to do so you can keep making music. Weekends, nights, whatever. You don't write like that and not share it with the world.
2: another john cusack movie Mm. high fidelity love it high fidelity is a hilarious movie and it just deals with it deals with a record store and mixtapes and it's all about music and it's maybe jack black's finest performance john cusack crushes it the thing about this is that it's it's all deep cuts except except uh, we're on the verge of being called uh, Kathleen Turner Overdrive. <laughs> However, this evening we will be Barry Jive
3: and the Uptown Five. Hey. I've been feeling really trying, baby, To hold on to this field for so long. And if you feel like I feel
1: He does, he does, like the Tenacious D meets Marvin Gaye. Totally. I'm really glad you brought this up, Clint, because the first dance at my wedding was I Believe When I Fall in Love by Stevie Wonder. Wow. And my bandmate, Greg Naughton, sang it, but I fell in love with this song through this film.
2: And it's the outro credits, right? And I didn't know this Stevie Wonder song no. until this movie. Yeah. But you know it's Stevie Wonder because it's Stevie Wonder. Yeah and you can
1: sing it the first time you hear it I walked out of that film being like that's the most incredible song that I've never heard it,
2: boy you just summed it up the most incredible song you've never heard that's what these amazing music supervisor and directors do yes. they find the most amazing song you've never heard and then make you see it in your head in that scene for the rest of your life
3: I believe when I fall in love when you will be forever When I fall in love with you, it will be forever. I believe when I fall in love.
1: Like our old friend Jeff Simons, for example, he, he would be like, you guys didn't know that song? Yeah, of course, of course. And we didn't, in part because of our age. So I'm so grateful to that song for making me listen to Stevie Wonder. And then as a result of that, I went on a deep dive in all those records. Right.
2: Funny, all through a movie. Come on! The perfect use of a song in a movie. Wait, did we do it? I think we did. Did we do it? I think we really right. did. Uh- Very
1: psyched. <laughs> Amazing. Well, we hope you had as much fun as we did. And we hope you'll join us next time when we answer another age, age old, old Qu- question. Follow us on Instagram at the age old question. Facebook, the age-old question. We hope this conversation has sparked some ideas and thoughts of your own. Let us know in the comments.
2: But let's be kind, people.
1: Yeah. No hating. No hating.